From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Shelley Jodwain. And I'm Hannah Cunningham. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we are bringing you more stories from the Conference on Cities and Climate Change that was held in Edmonton by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, over March 5th to 7th. In our first story, we will bring you a conversation about renewable energy projects in the Beaver Lake Cree First Nation. Our second story is about the Rockies Institute, a nonprofit based in Canmore, Alberta. Terran former Dylan Hall had the opportunity to speak with Crystal Lehman, a member of the Beaver Lake Cree First Nation. She's currently pursuing a master's degree in Indigenous Peoples Education at the University of Alberta. Dylan spoke with Crystal about renewable energy projects that she helped facilitate for her community. Crystal Lehman Sigaswan, Miskseka Nihiopia Goskan, Wistisamao Oyosiwinagotasik. So um, I'm Crystal Lehman and I'm a member of the Beaver Lake Cree Nation. And I am currently a grad student in the Department of Ed Policy Studies uh, on campus at the University of Alberta. So uh, my stream is Indigenous Peoples Education. So you were talking about um, being quite interested in solutions and food sovereignty, energy sovereignty. I'm really curious how those things play in with political self-determination and potentially cultural sovereignty. If they do, if they don't, how that relates in your mind. I have to bring it back to the work that I did in my own community. It was a collective and collaborative um, approach, which is all about, you know, which is what our communities are grounded in. Um, and, and so my community really practices that. And through and, and luckily through the relationships that I have built with um, environmental uh, organizations and and through the the allies you know the non-indigenous allies that I was able to build relationships with you know some really cool opportunities came to the community and so so one of them being a opportunity to implement a small-scale solar project in the community right now we have hundred and three point nine kilowatts of PV solar in the community. And we've done that in about a year, um, which is pretty amazing. And we were able to utilize the Indigenous Climate Leadership Initiative. We were then able to, we were able to implement a food sovereignty project. Um, so addressing food insecurity. And we implemented a fruit orchard in the community. So we put that at the school as well. So how that ended up working out was you know, while we were exploring this small scale initially um, PV solar project, that was the energy piece, right? So now we were like, okay, but how do we address food? Which we were kind of already doing in the community anyways. So we have um, traditional harvesting camps in the community where we are going back to our original instructions on sustainable practices around food. So berry picking, fishing, um, the community has, um, we have buffalo in the community. So harvesting the buffalo. So traditional uh, land-based um, subsistence. We were already doing that in the community. And we were doing that through the 
these on-the-land camps. And then it was like, okay, but how do we now talk about growing our own food? What does that look like? And, and how do we combine that with the land-based harvesting to address the disproportionate rates of diabetes, the disproportionate rates of obesity, um, and teaching our children um, how to eat well and eat clean and eat healthy. And, and so we said, well, let's, let's grow fruit orchard. <laughs> and so, so we went to the school and we said, hey, you know, we're, in, we're interested in doing this, but we want it to be focused on our children, just like the, the solar project, the first solar project is focused on our children. Um, how would you feel about that? In the school, the, the, the educators there were so receptive to it. They were like, absolutely. And so the principal um, basically said, we have, we've got the soccer field out back, put it there. Um, so we now have a 250 square foot by 150 square foot fruit orchard in the community, directly adjacent to 150 square foot by 50 square foot um, community garden. Because in the community, we were already, um, so for one week in the fall, we have a canning, our food preservation program, where, you know, they, the community members come together and they, like, they can you know, they preserve food. Um, and so we were having to purchase that food off reserve, right, from the local town. We already know what the, what the, the um, emissions profile looks like for trucking in the fruits and the vegetables from California. Um, so we said, let's grow our own fruit. Let's grow our own vegetables for the food preservation program. Let's grow our own apples and implement an apple program in the school as a means to addressing diabetes and obesity and teaching our children how to eat well. And then we're able to address greenhouse gas emissions as well um, by growing our own fruits and vegetables for the canning program. Environmental injustice, institutional and environmental racism, and then the flip side, climate justice and environmental justice. How would you either define those or perhaps give us one example? of what you see as an act of environmental injustice and an act of environmental justice concerning Indigenous peoples? In understanding climate justice and environmental justice from an Indigenous worldview, mm -hmm. um, I need to, to first of all frame what I mean when I say that. So, you know, our worldview as Indigenous people is relational and interconnected. And it's rooted in uh, spiritual and ancestral knowledge, fundamental knowledge, which basically, you know, translates to common sense, um, ways of being and doing, um, and, and what we define as natural law. You know, our worldview is becoming undeniably critical to building solutions. For, for us as Indigenous people, um, we have... Um, you know, this is essentially a, a matter of life and death for us, in, you know, when we, when we talk about um, climate justice and environment, environmental justice. Um, and so it's our view um, that the impacts of climate change are not only about our rights, but also um, our treaty ways of life, our subsistence, spiritual connections to our lands, um, our territories and our resources.
and our responsibilities and therefore um, no discussion about climate change should be held without us. And, you know, as Indigenous peoples, we want to contribute to the solutions and, and um, we want to build on our common challenges, you know, so, so as long as the sun shines, the rivers flow and the grasses grow, um, which is script from, from Treaty Number 6, which was entered into in 1876, so essentially forever. And that was Dylan Hall interviewing Crystal Lehman, speaking about renewable energy projects in the Beaver Lake Cree First Nation. Next, our second interview is with Laura Lines, co-founder and board member of the Rockies Institute based in Canmore, Alberta. Terrett Informers Chris Chang-Yen Phillips and Dylan Hall spoke with Laura about the organization's work and the inspiration behind it. They also discussed the many threats facing our changing environment and how Indigenous knowledge and science can work together to respond. So this is the key. It's when a person connects mm. for themselves into this complex issue we're calling climate change. But when we connect personally, that's, I think, when we all become agents of change and we'll do something beyond recycling. I'm Laura Lyons. I'm with the Rockies Institute where I am a volunteer board member. I'm in the position right now of president and I'm one of the co-founders. And in my other life, uh, I work in strategy for different universities and NGOs. What drove the creation of the Rockies Institute? Or, yeah. I was actually hiking up in the high alpine. I was in a glacier deposit and I had an overwhelming sense of I need to do something and I need to do something different than what I'm doing at, at that time and I wasn't really sure what it was but I thought maybe it's glaciology maybe it's hydrology I'm not really sure and that led to um, following my lead like lead you know when you get that feeling in your gut and there's little signs well, it was an experiment for me. I followed the signs and shortly after that there was a conference where all the leading glaciologists and hydrologists in Canada were coming to my hometown, which is Canmore, Alberta. So I went to the conference and I met people and my background was in international intercultural communications. So I said, I'm not a glaciologist, but I think something more needs to be done. And this led to a working group, which eventually became the Rockies Institute about eight years later. So it was a really interesting journey. And the whole time I've listened very closely and watched the signs that are, are being put in front of us. And it, um, it's come together in a remarkable way. And I, something I believe in is that we have so much noise around us that it's difficult to make decisions when you've got billboards and marketing and cars and just the busyness of life. But if you quiet your world, and listen to what nature and animals are telling you, you will find answers. So it was very much aligned with my thinking. And that is that is the essence of the Rockies Institute. Wow, if, if you live in Kimmore, you must like get up the mountains like fairly frequently, right? Can you place us on that hike? Like what was it about that day? It was being in the glacial deposit and the honest, uh, just it was being in a glacial deposit 
and being by myself in that deposit and being so small in such a big, massive area with so much history. So the area is very close to where life began. I wasn't right in the Burgess Shale at the time, but we're still similar elevation, which is really when you think about where we are now in time and history, and yet there's this whole other history that happened where species have gone extinct. And there I was standing in in life and death all around me represented in a, in a glacial deposit. And I think that's, it's powerful, it really is powerful. Now, had I been on a hike with a bunch of friends and talking the whole time, I might have just looked around and noticed, hey, this is beautiful, but that wasn't the case. It was a reflective day and I'm very grateful for that. Hmm. So can you tell us about the um, Kainai First Nation Climate Change Project that the Rockies Institute has been working on? Yeah, so this is a fun project. I was invited by a colleague in the United States who's doing work with the Blackfeet on an adaptation project. They said, you know, you really should work with the Canadians. So I was invited to meet with uh, the counselor at the time who was Mike Brewsthead. And that meeting went so well, I said, are you guys interested in dealing with climate change? And they said, well, we don't really know too much about it. We'd like to hear a little more. We said, great, so let's have some meetings. And we had no project in mind, we had no money, but we had an idea for what this might look like. So we went there and through a series of different meetings over, um, I don't know, about a year, we co-developed this project. And when I say co-developed, it was based on, okay, we, the, the, I said, well, okay, what about climate change? You need to, are you gonna need to adapt? Well, what does adaption, what does adaptation mean? Okay, what we really need is we need education so that we all understand when you say adaptation or when you say mitigation, what does that mean? So we, then they also said, what's really important to us is elder and youth engagement. So I went away and developed a program that was suitable for them proposed it, they made some tweaks, we went back and forth, and that's how the Building Climate Change and Adaptation Resilience in the in the Kainai First Nation project came about. And it's evolving all the time, because we keep learning new information, and then we just tweak it. Our funders, you know, it's a little hard with them, because, but we're educating them as well, because funders will say, well, we want these deliverables by this date. <laughs> yeah, okay, we'll do that. But we always preface it by saying, we'll do that, but, you have to know <laughs> that it could change because there might be a circumstance that comes, especially with the unpredictability of climate change. Something could come like a fire growing through their community that really puts everything off, or it could be something totally unrelated that's a social issue that throws things off. So we're doing this dance where it's um, being flexible and educating funders that it has to be flexible and working all, all the long way the journey with the tribe. Has that happened already, those kind of yeah. like... All those things happen. <laughs> we actually had a whole new change of tribe and council too, right in the middle of it. So we had to, yeah, we had permission from the previous uh, chief and council, and then a new chief and council came in. So we had to go through the process again with them. <laughs> so we're we're at the IPCC Cities Conference. We've been just at this panel where you were speaking about different ways of of getting a read on what impacts are happening in terms of climate change. So in your project, what are the different systems of knowledge that you're trying to tap into in assessing what's happening in the community? So right now what we're doing is we're looking to the elders about what they're seeing on their land and what their, so their perceived risks 
Um, they're a little bit different than what I would have expected because I thought they would talk more about wildfire and drought as risks. And what we're hearing from them is it's actually food and culture security in that their traditional plants are they're, they're, they're no longer. There's places where they can't find their traditional plants and they suspect it has a lot to do with the health of the land due to agricultural practices and we don't know that for sure yet so that's something that we're going to look into but what we thought was, was a concern, um, they're more concerned about that they're going to be able to have the healing and the cultural type of plants um, for them. So. There's also some concerns about the animal health and different animal species coming in that weren't there before. So we're listening to their observations and then trying to develop an adaptation plan based on that. There's also concerns about energy because they're very, uh, they're, a lot of their income has come from oil and gas and now it's a whole new world about that they have to learn now what is this world about solar panels or wind and how do we bring in renewable energy and is it going to be viable source of energy security and I believe it will be but it's certainly um, a new conversation that they're having. When you're talking about those those observations that people have made about um, different uh, traditional plants or animals like we're not talking about university studies right we're talking about a different system of knowing about the land. Is that yeah yeah so, so it's observation it, it is I go outside for the for the last 15 years. I go out and these plants were here and they haven't been here for the last five years. I can't find them anymore. Why is it important to the Rockies Institute to, to integrate those kinds of types of knowledge into those projects? Well, I'm glad you said the word integrate because I've been saying that word too and I have learned from being here at this conference actually and working with my colleagues that it's actually not about integrating because when we integrate in we're still dealing with the same system of knowledge and what we're trying to do is weave it weave two different because I, I do believe that there's some wonderful information that science can bring that will help indigenous communities but likewise it is their perspective um, it is their perspective on the natural world that I believe needs to be woven in to decision making. So while the observations are important, it really links back to what are they observing and why, which goes back to what is their worldview. And it is a very different approach if you believe that a tree has intrinsic value than if a tree doesn't have intrinsic value, what you're observing and what you're going to be talking about. In terms of weaving those two ways of knowing, science, as I have learned it, is not just about gathering information or making observations. It's often also about management and making decisions in terms of relating to the land. And I'm wondering about those words, about integrating, incorporating, weaving the differences between them and how I suppose in this project and also in other projects how that power relationship works out in terms of managing and making decisions about land is science usually preferred is that different in your project well 
I try to simplify it mm -hmm. in that because it can be quite complex. So I try to take the complex and make it simple. In that, if there are if there is information that science has derived, so for example, how to put up a solar panel and that uh, a so, so the science behind a solar panel, or um, maybe how to do agriculture differently that both science is developed one way and science now is developing a new way. It's about taking the components of science that work for the community in consultation with the community. And that's what is important. Then you can weave. So it's the same as why would, it's not necessarily just taking indigenous knowledge and, in, and weaving it in just for the sake of weaving it in. What is the reason for doing that and can if if you strip it all away and get just to the heart of it if we are doing this together to move forward on a different trajectory so that we're not going down the road we are right now to a very quick extinction and very very high temperatures the value of bringing some indigenous knowledge in or bringing scientific knowledge into a Indigenous community is to help the community but everybody do better and I think if you look at it from that perspective a more holistic perspective then it's not about indigenous knowledge it's not about scientific knowledge it's just about knowledge and what knowledge is going to get us where we need to get and strip away all the complications and all of the um, I guess gates and barriers that are in our way and I know I mean I, I it sounds a little maybe too too simplified but we do we have to get there because there's yes there's government yes there's power imbalances yes there's greed and those things will always be there but at the end I think that there is no human being no matter how greedy they are who wants to die or wants to see their family die and we are getting to the point where it is a crisis and that has to be at, for, at the forefront of our discussions. This is serious and this is why we're doing this versus this is a nice thing to do and it'll change power and balance. It's about surviving. You talked about that kind of aha moment in the glacier that this was born like out from. Has your group had a kind of aha moment of like, oh yeah, this is why this all matters. This is why this work was worth it so far. I get different people having aha moments. Not every day, but often, and it's awesome. It is awesome to see that happen. Yeah. Can you tell us about one of them? Just one. Well, one of them was actually not in our Indigenous project. It was uh, an older woman who knows a lot about climate change. And we were in a, a sharing circle um, talking about some challenges that we had. And it wasn't until I was, I was actually talking about the sixth extinction and how we are in that right now and how I worry about are we going to be able to move forward in a passionate way as human beings um, and addressing this problem through the eyes of compassion and after she came to me she said I know about science and I know about climate I read I, I get it she goes I, I never clued in until we had it in this type of conversation in, in relation to our survival so it was really neat to see her just light up yeah i loved it yeah. what do you hope the larger ipcc can learn from what 
your group is doing? There are two things that I hope they do. Any engagement moving forward with Indigenous people, that it is done with a different construct of time, at least a half a day followed with a meal so that people can talk over food and have time. Because I believe that if you create the space for that to happen and the right elements are there, all the other stuff will fall into place. Because you have really intelligent people, well-meaning people, you have the will. You just need to allow them to have that construct now. You can't force those things into tiny little back rooms in 90 minutes and expect anything miraculous to happen. And we need miracles. <laughs> um, for, I, like we heard about the experiment yesterday, but do you want to explain about that um, just for our listeners? We were invited to submit a proposal to the IPCC session to bring Indigenous people yeah, to this conference and they at first said could you please submit a 90-minute proposal and I said not even gonna waste my time on that not doing it but if you will accept a different proposal I said well they said okay <laughs> so I did I said we went a half day and we want there to be food we want there to be different construct of time and it was oh it's complicated because everybody wants you to fit into these little boxes but they said, yeah, let's try it out. And I think it worked really well. Um, it was a short time period to pull it all together, but um, Village of Hope and people came there with really great intentions of just meeting and being in the space with different types of people and sharing knowledge. So we're just thrilled that we were able to be a convener and help facilitate that to happen. And the Kainai members, we had um, quite a few elders show and some youth and came from a long way to, to come up and do this, but it is testament to how much they are dedicated to doing climate change work and being the largest tribe in Canada. It's um, important they do this, but also really inspiring, I think, to hopefully other Indigenous communities throughout Alberta and beyond. For folks who don't live in southern Alberta, could you just, and, and we have some listeners like all over Canada, would you mind sort of geographically tying us into, when people think of Kainai First Nation, what re region should they think of? Oh, okay, so there's the traditional Blackfoot Terry, and then there's the Blood, blood Tribe, so we're primarily dealing with the Blood Tribe which is in, the, in standoff. So if you look up standoff, then you would see where the blood tribe is, but it extends to the timber limit. So they have prairie, they have three rivers running through, and then they go right up to Waterton. And they are landmass-wise, they're the largest tribe in Canada. They also have 12, just over 12,000 people. Very large. Yeah. Laura? Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thanks, Laura. Cool. Can I, um, can you give me a card? That was Chris Chang-Yen Phillips and Dylan Hall speaking with Laura Lines about the Rocky Institute in Alberta, science and Indigenous knowledge. If you want to hear even more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. 
We would love to get to know you, our listeners, and what you enjoy about the show. Your input can influence the content we gather over the next year. If you want to join our team and share your stories, check out the About Us tab on terrainforma.ca. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Terrainforma is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at terrainforma. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Amanda Rooney, Ashley Coaches, Charlie Blay, Caitlin McNabb, Chris Changin Phillips, and Dylan Hall. We've been your hosts, Shelley Jablain and Hannah Cunningham. Catch you next week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>